One can't help but wonder if someday the 2020 race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine will be regarded as a time of desperately urgent manufacturing akin to the space race of the 1950s and 60s. We're recording this at a time when the history of the COVID-19 vaccine is still being written. Millions have been vaccinated and every single day more and more receive one of the three available here in the U.S., known by the companies who developed them, the Pfizer-BioNTech, the Moderna, the Johnson & Johnson. These vaccines are providing hope to many that there is finally light at the end of this dark tunnel. But what are these three? Why not any of the other pharmaceutical leaders here in the U.S.? What did they have that the others didn't? The stated goal of the R&D tax credit has always been to spur innovation and technological breakthroughs, and it was perhaps the development of these life-saving vaccines at a time when the country needed the most that has provided the clearest example of these ambitious aims of the R&D in action. On today's episode of the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, we're going to explore how vital research and experimentation in pharmaceuticals led to one of the most important breakthroughs in the history of modern medicine and how R&D laid the groundwork for this critical life-saving discovery. To help us do so, I'd like to hand things over to manager of R&D tax credit at Cross Border Solutions, Lydia Clowney. The floor is yours, Lydia. Matt, thank you so much. Great to be back. And I'm uh, joined today by our guest, Stephen Easel. He's a vice president in global innovation policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, where he focuses on science and technology policy, international competitiveness, trade, manufacturing, and service issues. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Well, we always like to start with sort of a high-level overview of whatever industry we're talking about. So here, would you be able to give us um, maybe what some of the general R&D opportunities are within the pharmaceutical industry? Well, you know, I'd like to maybe start with a story, if I could. You know, today, the United States leads the world in biomedical innovation of the roughly 8,000 new the world medicines under development globally, everything from cancers to Alzheimer's to diabetes, and more than half of those are being developed in the United States. U.S. companies in 2019 invested $83 billion in R&D. U.S. life sciences industry is the world's most R&D intensive, investing more in research than any other industry in the world. Clearly, the U.S. leads, but that wasn't always the case. In fact, if you roll the tape back to the 1970s, the last part of that decade, European headquartered companies introduced more than twice as many new-to-the-world drugs as American ones did. Only 5% of new-to-the-world drugs were introduced first in the United States. Even as recently as 1990, uh, the global pharmaceutical industry invested 50% more in R&D in Europe than in the United States. But over the past four decades, we have entirely flipped that script. And we've done so through a series of intentional public policy choices, such as introducing the R&D tax credit in 1981, uh, policies like the Bayh-Dole Act to move technology from universities to the marketplace. So it's important for your listeners to understand that America is becoming the leader in R&D and life sciences innovation was because of smart public policies and good corporate management practices. 
That's so interesting. So it's, it's, it's more than just any one factor. It seems like it's a whole suite of reasons that would go into making a, a country a leader in this area. Is that accurate? That, that's absolutely right. There's other facets of the U.S. innovation system, very strong and complementary public and private investment in the life sciences. The National Institute of Health invests about $39 billion a year in basic life sciences R&D, looking into how cells operate looking for potential disease targets within the body for drugs. And then the private sector goes ahead and develops clinical compounds, tests them, and, and, and attacks those diseases. So, so there's a high degree of complementarity in kind of the life sciences innovation system. Very important. But, you know, the, the R&D tax credit, it's, it's really important to understand that this was a groundbreaking incentive for investment when it was introduced in the U.S. in 1981. For years, the United States had the world's most generous R&D tax credit. Unfortunately, we don't now. Today, we're 24th out of 34 OECD countries in our R&D tax credit generosity. So we could further strengthen our innovation system in the U.S. if we got ourselves back into the lead. But there's no question. You know, if you look at how much the life sciences industry invests over the past decade, the United States invested 10 times as much in life sciences R&D per year than we did in the 1980s on average. And over the past decades, even twice as much as the decade before. So we have an environment where it created the incentives for private firms to invest in life-saving life sciences R&D and that supported by effective public policies like the tax credit, like the complementary public investment. So there's really a system, like you say, that goes into this. And I guess that that probably extends to the individual companies doing development as well, correct? It wouldn't just be that they have great scientists, but also maybe the methodology that they use. I, I understand that typically in, in pharmaceutical industry, we see the agile methodology being important. Can you tell us more about that methodology and how it's distinct from other approaches to development? Agile innovation, agile development, of course, agile refers to quickly adapting to changes in the market. And an agile organization is one that has a strong foundation of established core practices and capabilities but with a high degree of flexibility and ability to make timely course adjustments to, to address change. So, you know, really we're talking about, you know, new kind of organizational approaches to innovation that are characterized by a focus on team-based interdisciplinary collaboration than a top-down structure, kind of a pyramidic hierarchy. Accountability tends to come from within a group and is built into the collaborations. Overall, the development process is characterized by quick changes, rapid growth, easy access to resources, and embrace spontaneity and inspiration and experimentation. And it's different um, from, from traditional approaches, because especially in science-based industries like chemicals or pharmaceuticals, it, historically the scientific approaches has been relatively traditional, relying on linear processes with one stage progressing to the next, only when the previous stage is complete, very, very, very process hierarchically oriented. So, you know, the agile approach is really about more flexibility, more parallel processing of innovation efforts, a far more team-oriented approach. You know, there's a wonderful article on the Harvard Business Review called Why Science-Driven Companies Should Use Agile. And they talk about a company in their Boston-based PDC pharmaceuticals. And what they found was that the company's innovation process wasted about 30% of, of their time and productivity just with inefficiency and back and forth reporting between individuals and, and their bosses. And that when this company, PTC Therapeutics, put in place an agile approach within a year, it was able to 
sufficiently uh, manage twice as many innovation projects while increasing the rate of their projects, kind of all by moving to a team-based structure that focused on kind of a rapid scaling of cross-research activities. So it's a whole different new approach to, you know, to, to thinking about innovation. You know, and it matters to this industry because life sciences companies must be innovating and experimenting constantly. And so to keep up with especially, you know, smaller, you know, bio-based startups, especially so the larger companies have to be innovative in their, in their historical approach to innovation. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. It seems like this year, this past uh, past year or so, has uh, made it really much more obvious how that kind of nimbleness would be important for a pharmaceutical company in particular. I mean, with with COVID, it was kind of all hands on deck, try to get a vaccine going as quickly as possible. And I imagine that having that flexible structure would help a company rise to meet that, that need. So how did companies past R&D activities set the table for the discovery of these life-saving vaccines? So it's important to understand that it is these decades of R&D investments. It's this decades worth of, of smart public policy choices uh, that position the United States with an incredibly strong biotechnology sector that was able as you say, to rapidly pivot in response to the COVID-19 crisis. It left us with strong companies uh, with a robust bench depth of scientific strength and STEM talent consider that 22% of workers in America life sciences industries are directly involved in R&D research, right? So you had the resources, you had the facilities. Facilities weren't things like the gene sequencers, like access to high-performance computers to model the effects of the proteins, right? So, you know, all across the board, we were fortunate to have this bench step to, to enable us to respond. You know, I think it's interesting to tell that story either through a couple of examples, both on the vaccine side and therapeutic side. Just quickly looking at the most effective COVID-19 therapeutic drug we've had, and that was Gilead Sciences Remdesivir or Remdesivir. But that drug, Gilead had spent over a decade since 2009 investigating as a possible treatment for infectious diseases from things like SARS to MERS into clinical trials in Ebola. It worked to a degree, but then other drugs were seen to be more, more effective at it. So it sat on the shelf. But then when the COVID-19 crisis hit, Gilead went, took it off the shelf, tested it against COVID-19, and sure enough, it was found to be highly effective. But what you had here was a company that over a period of a decade had invested $1.3 billion of R&D into this potential drug, all taking 
these investments at risk before they could ever know whether the molecule would become effective uh, potential treatment for a disease, right? So it's a great story of a company that had made investments over time that directly paid off in, in COVID-19 situation. And, and with vaccines as well, if you think about Moderna and their mRNA vaccine, Moderna had been at work for a decade trying to develop mRNA-based vaccines. And to overcome a lot of very challenging hurdles. Um, the, the, originally, the mRNA structures trying to insert them into cells were very brittle. They'd break down. The body would reject them. Moderna, in total, spent billion dollars over the course of a decade developing this technology before we ever had a thought that COVID-19 would come along. So it's just two examples of the fact that we've put in place a system that incentivizes private investment in risky, difficult uh, life sciences R&D that pays off. And you've got to remember that on average, uh, it takes a company 12 to 14 years at a cost exceeding now $2 billion <laughs> to develop a new drug. And that's why Again, this ecosystem, things like the tax credit, things like robust intellectual property rights are vital um, to being able to respond in these types of crises. And uh, it's exactly why, to your point, uh, that you can go through the list of, of the companies, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, right, Pfizer. It's, it's the U.S. companies, obviously, BioNTech being a German a partner of, of Pfizer. But when you consider today that there are over 229 active uh, clinical trials test for possible COVID-19 vaccines, and there are 1,604 clinical trials ongoing for COVID-19 therapeutics. That's all wonderful, but you know what? The vast majority of those are coming from U.S.-based companies uh, because we've created an ecosystem that supports innovation. You said something really interesting that I feel like has gotten lost in this conversation about the, the vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. Uh, about people have said, oh well, they they got they got produced so quickly. How could they produce them so quickly? And the fact is that you mentioned is that in fact they were working on this technology for a decade ahead of that. Is there any connection between the amount of R and D that was spent by a company prior to COVID and which companies ended up producing a vaccine? Absolutely, I think you can make that correlation. Um, we did a report in 2020 called Ensuring U.S. Biopharmaceutical Competitiveness. And you know that report ranked which of the world's life sciences companies were the most R&D intensive, whether just an absolute R&D investment or as a, a share of the revenues, right, R&D intensity. And again, the overwhelming set of companies on the list were U.S. ones. In fact, if you look at the year 2017, on average, U.S. biopharmaceutical companies invested 3.5 times the amount in R&D as a share of sales that European ones did, and 10 times the amount of the OECD app. Then it should come as no surprise that Merck, J&J, Pfizer had the R&D talent, they had the R&D skills, they had the R&D processes in place, and this positioned them to, to, to eventually respond. And, and you know, coming back to how amazing this is, before COVID-19, on average, it took 14 years to develop a new vaccine. And there was a wonderful report. If you go back to GlaxoSmithKline's 2017 report, uh, they noted, quote, it can take up to $1 billion in 20 to 50 years to create and fully distribute a vaccine at scale. And the average was 14 years. So if you think about the fact that Moderna was able to design their mRNA vaccine in two days once they received the gene sequence. They were able to get it into clinical trials in 45 days. 
they were able to get approval in under a year for the drug, and that within about two years, we're going to produce, at, by the end of 2021, an expected 11 billion doses of vaccine globally. This is an incredible the testament in human history to, to, to the power of life sciences and patients. It is incredible. I, I mean, I think we said a miracle of modern science, and it sure sounds like it. I mean, the amount of work that has gone into producing these, and and like you say, not not just after we needed it, but but laying the groundwork for a decade beforehand. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp these companies they've been working on these initiatives for a long time they spent all this time and money putting together these vaccines and getting them tested and getting them produced obviously they're hoping for some kind of payout there also um, typically that comes through a, a patent situation through those ip protections uh, now, President Biden recently signaled support for a global patent waiver on the COVID-19 vaccine so that they can be more widely developed around the world. And we are seeing some pushback on this, certainly from the pharmaceutical companies saying it will affect the development of new drugs in the future. Also pushback from some other countries, nations in the EU, for instance, who don't support a waiver. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why there's so much pushback against this? Well, I think the pushback is warranted, and that's because the call that India, South Africa, and other civil society advocates had made for a COVID-19 TRIPS waiver of intellectual property rights pertaining to you know, vaccines, drugs, diagnostic kits uh, relating to COVID-19 is just simply misguided, unnecessary, and unwarranted. Now, if you go back to the actual petition, that was first filed by India and South Africa in October of 2020. This is what the actual petition says, quote, to date, there is no vaccine or medicine to effectively prevent or treat COVID-19. So why then was there a need to waive intellectual property rights for technologies and innovations that didn't even exist? If you further read the petition, uh, they can't really find a single credible instance in which intellectual property rights represented a barrier to access or to manufacture or distribution of the vaccines. And, you know, the reality is that the only point in this COVID-19 pandemic in which intellectual property has ever been a problem was at the beginning, when we didn't have the intellectual property we needed 
to be able to respond to it. We had to create the IP, we had to create the vaccines, create the therapeutics, create the diagnostics. So the, the notion that, that the intellectual property uh, constitutes kind of a barrier is, is really uh, a solution in search of a problem. Uh, in fact, the reality is quite the opposite. The reality is that the intellectual property rights attached to COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics have actually created a framework that have been vitally important in facilitating the responsible transfer of IP rights through voluntary licensing. Um, now, there are well over 100 uh, examples of companies uh, licensing their IP, whether it's Johnson and Johnson working with with the, with the Serum Institute, you know, as as Adam Punawala, the CEO of the Serum Institute, said when he was recently asked about this, he said he was asked if the vaccine rollout was slowed because vaccine patent holders were were licensing too few to manufacturers to make them. He said, "Quote: No, there are enough manufacturers. It just takes time to scale up." And by the way, I've been blown away by the cooperation between the public and private sectors over the last year in developing these vaccines. And even the director of Medicine Sans Frontiers acknowledged in a BBC interview that, quote, suspending patent rights wouldn't produce millions of more vaccines. In other words, the problem is manufacturing at scale, right? It's not the IP, right? It's the problem is manufacturing at scale. So how do you do that? Well, through the responsible use of, instead of forcing companies to divulge their intellectual property or enter into compulsory licensing agreements with other manufacturers, companies should have the right to evaluate potential partners to ensure they're sophisticated enough to handle the extreme complexity of manufacturing these vaccines and that they can meet the production standards required to do it safely and reliably. And there's just absolutely no evidence that invalidating IP rights would achieve more than the hundreds of license agreements that have already been forged between innovators and reputable vaccine manufacturers across the world. So this is exactly why uh, the leaders of, of a number of countries have, have pushed back on elements of the proposed TRIPS waiver. It's why Chancellor Merkel of Germany has expressed a view that patents aren't the challenge uh, to vaccine production, but uh, rather uh, providing uh, more tangible resources and, and, and production capacity, high quality standards. It's why, you know, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has worked for other alternatives to promote greater manufacturing of vaccines than, you know, having turned initially to uh, the, the TRIPS waiver. So the developed world has a moral responsibility and obligation to assist developing countries to ensure that all citizens of the world have access to the COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics they need as quickly as possible. But the reality is that it's not intellectual property rights that are standing in the way of that. It's a challenge of manufacturing at scale. And so what's needed then is, is another thing. It's coordination among governments to smartly identify where the bottlenecks in these production chains are and how they can be addressed by alternative sources of supply, it's providing funding if necessary to developing countries to purchase the vaccines. It's one thing we should be doing, there are still over 100 export bans for various PPEs or medical devices that countries have in place uh, since the start of the pandemic. Now, rolling back those types of barriers are what we need to address this challenge, not trying to appropriate uh, the intellectual property that others have invested billions to develop. Thank you so much, Stephen. This is a really nuanced discussion, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 
A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We want to thank Lydia and Stephen for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you like today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and the Fiona Show Hot Off the Press. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit. And we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>